Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I'm Nomi Key Konst and four weeks from today, this will hopefully all be over. Pay attention and work hard these next 28 days because we are witnessing something we may not see again in our lives. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, who bullied and lied his way into the White House, is disintegrating before our eyes, politically speaking, of course. At last, the country is recognizing the Donald Trump some of us have seen all along. My friend Wayne Barrett, the late, great Wayne Barrett, the famous investigative reporter from New York, warned us long ago, decades ago, that Donald, that's what he used to say, was a con man and a huckster. The country didn't listen, and it took an invisible virus to reveal what Wayne had tried to show us for decades. Donald Trump is infected with a virus that disproportionately kills men his age and his weight. Yet he forced his doctors to let him out of the hospital to appear strong and in control. And when he got home last night, he paraded up back up, back up those stairs, stood on that balcony with those flags his staff had set out there, ripped off his mask and saluted twice. How a Vita Perone of him. Who the hell was he saluting? The Secret Service agents whose lives he endangered? Or maybe the 41% of voters who still say they support him in today's devastating CNN poll. This is madness. Even a Vita would have been ashamed of that performance he put on last night. Well, Mr. President, the show, the show is over. When your support is built like a reality show, real reality can bite pretty hard. No Manafort, no Bannon, no Stone. You fired all of your A to D level staff. The rest now have COVID and the White House is empty and I'm not really sure what's going on with the campaign. Your conspiracy theorist base isn't exactly winning you over these undecideds or the low tax loving centrists. But there is something very important we need to remind each other for the next 28 days. Sweeping Donald Trump from office is the start of our work, not the end. Biden's support doesn't exactly run all that deep either. He just has been not been getting the same pounding that Donald Trump does, even though it's self-induced. Which means the future, both in terms of leaders and issues, is wide open. And I believe that in this turmoil, things are actually moving our way. So have a little hope here. You probably don't follow the International Monetary Fund saga all that closely. Most of the time, as we all know, they are an instrument to defend market capitalism in the developing world. They are certainly no hotbed of modern monetary theory. We know that too. But yet yesterday, they called on rich countries like ours to spend more money to invest more money in repairing roads and bridges and building new green infrastructure and internet access. Go ahead, they said. Borrow and spend. Put people to work. Did the IMF just join DSA? The world is turned upside down, and it took millions of lives infected to wake global finance up. My question is now, will Rosa Luxemburg, the Rosa Luxemburg Institute, join forces with Davos next year? I hope that this is a trend. I hope that more people and more organizations take notice and follow suit. Now, take a look at the CNN poll today. I know I've said you shouldn't pay too much attention to national polls. Important. Certainly, Biden's huge national lead can give a false sense of security to an election that will be decided in a handful of states, in a handful of counties, in a handful of neighborhoods. It ain't over until it's over. That is absolutely for sure. And there's no telling what Trump will do as he feels cornered and the steroids kick in. 
But go into the poll cross tabs, as the professional pollsters call them. Look at the overwhelming way American voters are moving in direction on the issues. Healthcare, Biden says now it should be universal. And 59 to 39% of Americans favor Biden on healthcare. Racial inequality, Trump dog whistles, and 62 to 36% of voters favor Biden. The Supreme Court, 57 to 41% go to Biden on the Supreme Court. Crime and safety, 55 to 43% favor Biden over Trump. On crime and safety, the message of Trump's election. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Biden is a muddled neoliberal and who knows what he's actually for. But that is the point. This election is opening the door for us to fight, to fill in the details on these issues, to turn the general public support into real progressive solutions. There will be a Green New Deal after this election, but it is on us to keep the neoliberals from creating a Potemkin Village Green New Deal that looks great, but protects their interests. We've seen it before. Same on healthcare, on policing, on equality. A moment is arriving, and we need to make sure the defeat of Donald Trump is understood not just as a rejection of this empty buffoon, but as a referendum on taking us forward. The pieces are all there. We have to put them in place. The country, as we know, from rural to coastal, to the heartlands, to the Rust Belt, to the Sun Belt, across the country, working people are supporting progressive ideas. The GOP's voter suppression and stacked courts may not be enough this time around to hold back what they know has been coming for decades. We have a great show for you today. Uh, what should radicals be doing right now on that subject? Well, we have just the guy here for you. Jonathan Smucker, an old friend, is here. And then later, we have the one, the only, Napoleon DeLegend back for another uh panel. He's on weekly now. Very exciting. And Ken Klippenstein. We're going to be talking about the crazy news uh, that has happened in the last few days since our last show. But first, make sure to smash that like button and click subscribe. Uh, I have some exciting news. We are going to be covering debates, uh, not just the presidential debates. We are going to be covering important debates across the country, Senate races. Uh, tonight, there is a, a race uh, in Arizona right now between Senator Martha McSally and Mark Kelly, who is uh, former Representative Gabrielle Giffords' his husband. He's an astronaut. They're running in a contest, a very, well, Actually, Mark Kelly is winning by a pretty large margin, but the debate should be interesting. We're going to be covering that tonight here on YouTube.com slash The Nomi Key Show. And then tomorrow we're going to be doing some analysis after the Harris-Pence debate. But we're going to be doing more debate coverage in key states where these, these Senate races are tight, that we should be watching, that maybe the national uh, audience does not see because they're not in that local district. We're going to be covering it. We're going to be showing these debates and we're going to be analyzing them. So now is a wonderful time to become a patron because that is what fuels this. Our patrons, I am so grateful to. Uh, you guys have really made this this machine operate so now we're we're doing more so join us on patreon.com slash the nomi key show uh but <laughs> wait there is more right okay we also have these mugs this is my moment to sort of kick in mugs and hang on one second we've got bags I've been told I have to pitch this more these are bags now that you can take to the grocery store because they're not making you know 
it, there was that rule where you had to like, I don't know if you guys had this in, in where you live, but they made us use their bags because of COVID. But now they're realizing it's not as much of a risk. So you can buy your Nomi show bag and a Nomi show mug and some stickers at the nomikishow.com. All right, guys, up after this break, we're going to do a quick segment and we're going to go straight to our interview with Jonathan Smucker. Stick around. We are starting something new. We're going to do some reoccurring segments. This one is new. It's called Today in Republicans Want to Win and Democrats Want to Make Money. It was announced Friday afternoon, hours after Trump's diagnosis with COVID-19, after that became public knowledge, that the Biden campaign would pull negative ads against his opponent, Donald Trump, during his illness and recovery. This move reinforces the idea that Trump, who is responsible for causing hundreds of thousands of deaths through mismanagement of the pandemic procedure, that he deserves an excuse for his endangerment of our lives. Regardless of the man's personal life, a real opposition party would find no reason to condone or make light of Trump's cruel administration. And of course, Biden has only handed fodder to Trump, who regardless accused Biden of not pulling the ads quickly enough. This is like the anatomy of the discourse between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Why do Democrats love to put the ball in Trump's court? All right. Got a great interview today. Welcome to the show. Jonathan Smucker is an old friend. He's an activist, an author, and organizer. He's the director and founder of Beyond the Choir, uh, which is an organization that partners with social justice groups to craft uh, resonant messaging, plan strategic campaigns, and mobilize a larger basis of support. And he is the author of Hegemony How To, A Roadmap for Radicals. Uh, and you're the co-founder, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, of Lancaster Stands Up, correct? That's how I think we met originally. Yeah, Lancaster Stands Up, and now Pennsylvania Stands Up. We're a, right. a statewide organization. Now. I'm sorry, Lancaster, because I'm from Lancaster, New York. That's where I grew up. And in Pennsylvania, it was always Lancaster. Lancaster, yep. I, I yep. can't even say it. <laughs> so Jonathan, we're um, the opening of the show, we, we talked about how this is sort of the moment where we start, you know, we have to focus in on our ideas because Biden hasn't really filled in the details of all these plans he's attached himself to. And we have an opportunity, hopefully, uh, if if he wins, um, if there are no shenanigans, which there will be, of course, uh, to help him fill in those details and pressure him to do so, which historically he has been malleable because he doesn't really stand for anything. It's not like he, he has this strict principle. So you've written a book. Uh, specifically geared towards this. I mean, what what do you think our steps right now from now until Election Day should be as a progressive movement? Well, let me back up for a second before saying what we should do right now, because I think what we should do now has to be understood in the context of what we're doing long term and a, a bigger strategy, um, because where we're at right now and what I think we have to do right now isn't the most fun part uh, or the part that we like the most or the most moralizing part yeah. um, of the work. I mean, but we're in the midst of a, a long time period where um, there is a, you know, insurrection in relationship or an insurgency in relationship to both political parties, right? Political authority is 
not seen as legitimate um, by a majority of Americans at this point. And so that that insurgency started. Republican Party really got a head start on that about, you know, around 2009 with the Tea Party. Yeah. Um, and then resulted in the Trump campaign. Um, there is a very different, but not the mirror image uh, insurgency in relationship to the Democratic Party. And we started a lot later. We really started, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street Occupy. Um, was uh, started about three years after the Tea Party, but even Occupy Wall Street, it took a number of years for that to be, um, to move into the electoral realm, um, which is not to diminish the, the intervention that Occupy made, that intervention of being in the streets, of naming the culprits, uh, setting up a defiant president at the doorstep of Wall Street three years after uh, the financial collapse, the foreclosure crisis, et cetera, and naming uh, the political system was rigged and, and framing a, 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 a basically a popular class conscious conflict uh, with the framing of the 99% versus the 1%. Then the Bernie Sanders campaign came in and really surprised a lot of people, including people on the left, by how far it got. Uh, I think a lot of people thought of Bernie Sanders more in the camp of like, no disrespect to Dennis Kucinich, but like somebody like Dennis. Oh, absolutely. Kucinich, yeah. yeah. Holding a righteous candle in the wind, but you know, this is America. You're never going to get anywhere running as a democratic socialist. And then, wow, like he came within reach of the nomination in 2016 up against a whole machine. And I think at that point we realized, like a lot of us realized, including some of us who maybe voted green in 2000, uh, like me, um, you know, it's game on, right? We don't have to be on the sidelines. Uh, we, um, you know, this kind of chasm between electoral work and movement work that you see with like Occupy Wall Street and and really movements for the past 30 years. Um, wow, that has only benefit, benefited um, the Democratic Party establishment and the political mm -hmm. class generally. And, oh, wow, like we can actually defeat them, right? Um, they're, they're not that good at this. Um, so the long-term strategy is building social movements, strong social movements. And we've been in a period for the past 10 years of the social movement renaissance that's happening. You know, for, for 40 years before that, there was this decline, decline of the labor movement, decline of people being involved in, in social movements. That's a lot of what my book is about, is like kind of coming of age in the 90s and being like, where is everyone? And like, Oh, yeah. I, I don't think people get it. Like, young. I mean, that's one thing that's... I, you mentioned voting green in 2000. I couldn't vote until 2002. Um, and, and I was a freshman in, in college in 2002. And I remember feeling, I mean, there were some hotbeds. Yes, absolutely. Big cities. There was uh, a, a, quite a bit of organizing on the ground against the war, but not every single college campus across America. I was at University of Arizona and it was silent. It was like a handful of me, <laughs> me and my four friends uh, on the mall, political science students. It just wasn't there. Yeah. So that that change is huge. I think a lot of folks who are coming of age right now look back at the Democratic Party and they're like, oh, Bernie lost this year. We always lose. And some of us like your age, my age, like yeah. we're more like, wow, this is like we've never had so much power. And right. we can see the trajectory of gaining power of not just like being this kind of righteous force in the wilderness or on the sidelines holding a righteous candle in the wind, but of you know, a, a, a contest, a coming contest to rest the helm um, uh, or at least have a lot of influence and win major concessions, like hopefully on the scale of the New Deal or the civil rights uh, legislation. You know, some of the biggest changes that have been won by people's movements in history, uh, we can see that trajectory. And so 
in answer to your question, sorry, it was a long no, no, no. Uh, kind of uh, background, but we we have to keep electing people like um, Jamal Bowman and Cory Bush and the squad. And it's happening. It's happening all across the country in the Pennsylvania primary. We swept progressives swept. We took out three incumbent Democrats in the yeah. primary. We defended three challenges to our progressives, like folks like Summer Lee defended their seats against, you know, so-called moderate um, challenges. And we won almost all of the contests between this kind of insurgent wing, people who are fighting, when I say insurgent wing, I mean people who are fighting for working people, right? Mm -hmm. People who are taking on the corporate power, the donor class that the Democratic Party has become so, um, you know, oriented toward over the past uh, few decades. Um, and so those candidates swept. Um, and some of them, we're going to pick up seats, most likely, you know, knock on wood, you never know until it happens. Um, so that is our trajectory is building the bigger, the stronger social movements and building, uh, you know, electing candidates who are actually standing up and fighting for us. But in the meantime, it is really important that we, I would say, confiscate elected offices from fascists um yeah. and and i i use that word fascist like you know uh, you know a lot of critique is made is trump a fascist is he just a wannabe aspiring fascist well you know let's not wait to call someone a fascist yeah. if they've consolidated the whole political system uh he you mean wants- we shouldn't debate debate <laughs> <laughs> semantics while uh, while free speech is, is at risk and people are being rounded up and put in cages. I mean, you, I, I'm happy to debate semantics. While we <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, come on, let's not, you know, what's the question, the forest for the trees, but um, we have to, we have to, we have to beat Trump. Um, and it doesn't mean we have to love Biden, but we have to beat Trump. Um, and so I think that's what we have to do right now. The, the, the home stretch, um, you know, if you can make calls, um, make calls and not just uh, for Biden and defeat Trump. We've got to elect these down ballot candidates yeah. as well. Um, and the good news is you don't have to do it. If you, if, if you like me, like, look, it's demoralizing, right? I do not love Joe Biden. I do like, that's to put it mildly. Um, you know, there is a democratic establishment that Joe Biden is part of. Um, and it's demoralizing that they were able to consolidate and to, you know, knock Bernie out of the race. Um, I wish we had Bernie as the candidate right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I volunteered. Uh, I went to Iowa twice. I made calls. I, I, I worked as hard as I could. A lot of, you know, thousands and thousands of us did. Um, but fortunately, there's people's organizations that folks can volunteer for that are not just working to defeat Trump. They're also working to elect these champions down ballot. Organizations like People's Action. Um, and many others, right? And so that's, we can volunteer for those organizations. And the, the great thing is those organizations are building power, not just to defeat Trump, but gearing up to push a Biden administration from day one to pass things like a Green New Deal. And, yeah. you know, eventually, hopefully- On their terms, all. not on, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, um, we talk about power on the left a lot. And I'm really happy that folks are starting to understand or learn about power and and how to use power and that is something that hopefully you learn through experience and being beaten up a lot like i think people our age have uh and and it would be wonderful to impart that wisdom on the younger folks who will be saving us uh but let's talk a little bit about like specific so there's electoral power taking over 
electorally. There's movement power, you know, targeting protests and 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 showing up on the streets and being very thoughtful about, you know, whether it's a massive protest, obviously that's sometimes a little bit more organic, um, or more targeted, like uh, sitting outside of 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 Lindsey Graham's office and getting him on the record saying something stupid and that, you know, that kind of stuff. What other types of power? I mean, how can we move our power in the right directions and use it po- uh, powerfully? Powerfully. So I think, you know, the chasm I talked about between movements or advocacy organizations, issue work on the one hand and electoral um, power and, and governance on the other, that chasm, again, has only served the people who have power, right? That chasm works to separate us from leveraging and influencing power. And ultimately, you know, we like to call co-governance, right? Where the people are co-governing with candidates that we've elected. That's right. um, so, so I think we can talk about different types of it, which I will here in a second, but I think it's really important to recognize that fundamentally, this is all politics. It's all cut from the same cloth of politics and it is all about power. It is all about collective wills, either organized or disorganized, right? And that is what we have to do. You know, um, there's a lot of different avenues, but I, I take a multifaceted approach. I, you know, I came up much more anarchistic, much more like uh, wary of, of all electoral power. And um, I, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I often thought, oh, people are wasting their energy, um, right. you know, movement energy by, by putting time into electoral campaigns. Well, the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and 2020 really shatters that because what Bernie was able to do is activate millions of people who our movements and organizations hadn't been successful in activating. So it wasn't like he was taking away energy. He was activating new energy. You know, in, in some ways, I, I like to think of it as a social movement in electoral drag, right? Um, and, I and I think that's how we have to think because, you know, we're in this dilemma Rewind 100 years, and the biggest means that working class people and poor people have for power is the labor movement, is labor unions, labor organization. There's other important organizations too, community organizations, et cetera. But labor is really important. Labor is still really important. Um, but the, the way the economy has developed has made it so it, it's an open question whether the labor movement alone will be able to play the role that it did 100 years ago. And we need other mechanisms. And what we're finding over the past few years with people-powered campaigns like AOC's campaign, like Cori Bush's campaign, uh, like um, Charles Booker, who who fell, barely fell short, right? Uh, Jess King here in, in Pennsylvania. Right. But these campaigns build power along the way, long-term power, and, and can become, you know, in relationship to people's organizations. But ultimately, in answer to your question, you know, we're at the tail end of a 40-year period of decline of organizations and institutions and leadership skills. You know, with neoliberalism, there was such a rise in individualism, and even the logic of collective action has become somewhat unfamiliar. Like, we're learning it again. The new generation is learning. Like, you know, it's becoming intuitive. We need collective action. But you have years, decades of institutional memory of how to organize that the kind of skills of of political organization, but also of statecraft, of politics, of navigating the train of politics. Like we have to relearn those. And we are, you know, you look at the past, you know, 10 years, 
And we're building up a bench of good candidates, campaign managers and staffers, and people who are proficient in movements. But it's kind of a race against time. We have to build more of that. And it's interesting you say this because um, if those folks who, who watch the show, we've talked about this a lot, that it's the last 40 years, it's not just that austerity governance has sucked resources from communities across this country. Austerity politics has sucked resources from developing talent. And, 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 and quite frankly, I mean, Republicans taking on unions, I mean, unions, union halls, I mean, even in the era where I grew up in Buffalo, New York, that was the meeting point where you would learn how to make calls, where you would learn how to be an organizer, even if you weren't a member of the union. It was these unions were so deeply connected to the Democratic Party across the country. So when you have a Democratic Party that decides 10 years ago, oh, you know what, we're not going to do any more local organizing, cutting funding across the board, that is a generation of potential campaign managers, organizers. And so the fact that our movement has been able to do this without an actual, you know, major vehicles and, and frankly, major funding attached to driving it is pretty extraordinary. And I think it's why it's so important for us to be learning these lessons and imparting them on on, on younger folks, because um, it's just that's that's the only way moving forward. I mean, you said something really interesting about um the social movement uh, in drag and electoral drag. And I always thought what Bernie did, and it really has not been discussed enough. Um, folks haven't been enough on message about this is he revived the Democratic Party. You know, people, the Democratic Party was leaking membership. It was just, you know, dis, it was just in certain states or more independents were left leaning than than a registered as Democrats. What he did because he was running the Democratic primary was people registered as Democrats and then they started running on the Democratic ticket. Not on the, you know, maybe a couple cases in the green ticket or, or another. But for the most part, it actually his movement strengthened the Democratic Party and he did a great amount of service for a dying Democratic Party. And I'm not even sure today if Joe Biden would have the path to win had it not been for Bernie Sanders helping wake up the country and a lot of folks and realizing that they should actually take part in politics. And look at us now. Yeah, you make some really, really good points there that I want to pick up on. The one sure. is that the Democratic Party under its current leadership has been bleeding out working class voters for decades. And when I say working class voters, that's not a euphemism for white voters. They've been bleeding out working class voters, white, black, brown, rural, urban for decades. Now, not all of those are switching over. Most of them are just staying home, right? The 2016 and, election, that was the actual story. Absolutely. And it, and it was it was for long before then. Um, and you, you had a kind of break in that with Barack Obama. Obama, in his as a candidate before he got into office, actually ran as an insurgent and attracted a lot of those folks again, right? But then, unfortunately, he 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 governed as you know a so-called centrist. He you know started the healthcare fight by making peace with the pharmaceutical and health insurance industries instead of picking the fights that we needed him to, to fight. Um, but every candidate, this you know, every, one of the reasons I'm so afraid about this election is that every candidate who was not the insurgent candidate for the past 20 years that the Democrats have nominated has lost. Yeah. The Electoral College, at least, even if they won the popular vote, Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton. And I think Obama actually breaks that story as a candidate. And we need to remember that, that Obama, the candidate, was very, very different than Obama, the um, 
the governor. And so they've been bleeding out these voters. And what they've been doing is this is at a time when when the political leadership of the country, there's become a, 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 a class chasm in the country. Basically, you've got the 0.1% problem, you've got the 1% problem, but you have also the kind of 10% problem. Um, Richard Reeves has written about this in his book, uh, Dream Hoarders, um, and um, where the top 10% of the country is really more and more, there's a chasm between them and the bottom 80 to 90% of, of uh, the population. And political power, the political class is concentrated roughly within that top 10%. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the, the Republican and the Democratic Party leadership, it's also a lot of our organizations, um, even union leadership. Basically, the political leadership of the country has become out of touch with the experience of everyday working class people. And it shows, right? And so the people in it, you know, a lot of a lot of my lefty friends are like, it's all a conspiracy, right? Like these interests are conspiring and they're paying. And that is absolutely happening, right? Like where, you know, people are footing a campaign bill and getting the votes. But of course, yeah. I think even more so it's dispositional. It's people coming up in the political class who are just oriented toward rich donors. They're oriented toward people like themselves and they don't understand the struggles of everyday working people, what people are going through. And that the ground has changed under their feet. This is not the 1980s. You know, um, Reagan is not popular anymore in terms of like what he stands for. So um, I and, think- and, yeah. and, 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 I just, and just to that point, for, for in the late 70s, early 80s, when uh, the new Democrats, the DLC, this moderate class of Democrats started to take power, the Clintonian uh, class of Democrats, their excuse was, which was partly true, but like it didn't mean that you- annihilated the unions as a result, that they didn't have enough money to compete with Republicans. Well, even to this day, in the Democratic Party itself, the teachers union is the largest donor to the Democratic Party. So it just never made sense to me that they were like, well, we need to go to the uh, lobbyists because we got to buy those ads to compete with, you know, the Reagan Republicans. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And part of that orientation toward the donor class and toward winning over this kind of elusive swing voter, instead of looking at the much larger block of people, you know, majority of Americans are staying home on election day, yeah. right? These are working people they've been bleeding out. And so the things that you raised, they all link together. We actually need to rebuild the Democratic Party along the lines that you said that Bernie is kind of a spearhead of that actually engages working people, goes to the door and teaches young people um, political skills along the way, um, because they 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 those happen in unions. They happen in organizations. Without organization or a campaign, it's very hard for individuals to gain those skills and for you know kind of generic activism to turn into the ability to you know have some skills related to politics and feel a sense of agency. Like oh, when I join together with others, we can actually outmaneuver and outorganize forces that are even more powerful than us because people power actually is something, you know, uh, money doesn't always win. It's it's actually no force in elections against determined people power. Um, so I think that that that's a really important point that you hit on with with uh, with Bernie Sanders. And that's why in this moment, I think it's so important to join organizations that are building power beyond just this campaign. Um, and I'm advocating for people to do that instead of calling instead of joining the, oh, the yeah. campaign. Um, so organizations like People's Action. So our our site that we launched a couple of weeks ago, nothimus.org, if you click there and you go to the uh, Let's Get to Work section, you can sign up for phone banks, 
um, or text banks or Facebook messages um, with People's Action, uh, with Vote Trump Out, which is a project of Roots Action, or with other organizations that are building people power that are on the insurgent side of this fight um, within the Democratic Party. Um, and, and you can get involved in that way. And, and I don't think we should just leave it to um, other people to witness because part of our critique of the Democratic Party is they just, you know, we can't count on them. We couldn't count on them to win it in 2016. We can't count on them to win it now. We really have to do our part. Um, yeah. And and so Biden gets elected, knock on wood, hopefully that happens. Um, where do you think the central point of organizing will be? I'm not necessarily saying should be, but will be. Uh, from and, and it doesn't mean there's one. There might be multiple things coming at once, but uh, something for us to, to think about in the coming months because January 20th is sooner than you think. Yeah, so a couple things. I think, one, we shouldn't count on them to do anything without pressure from working people, from mm-hmm. um, movements and organizations of working people. There is some. There are some signs that... Um, some that like Chuck Schumer has surprised me lately, right? He's calling for things like an executive order He's scurred. Or, or debt um, for debt relief, right? Or, or for student debt forgiveness, um, you know, whether it goes as far as Bernie, but, but there's some indication that some people in power um, actually are, are starting to understand that if the democratic party doesn't do, doesn't deliver for working people in a big way, that the next wave could be worse, right? You know, I mean, there's a there's a whole wave of young Republicans, you know, college age people who have like now they understand the authoritarian playbook, and some of them could emerge to be more competent authoritarians than Trump. And the only way to stop that, <laughs> we're not going to stop that by returning to you know the neoliberal status quo. We won't. Yeah. We'll, we'll lose again soon. We have to start delivering for working people, and so. There's some indications that Biden himself might get that on some level, that Schumer might get that, that some of these politicians, even if, like, I'm not saying they're our friends. I'm just saying they are political animals who understand they want to be in power. And they're starting, some of them are starting to see the writing on the wall. But we can't count on that ever. The only thing we can count on is that they will respond to pressure. And so it's our responsibility to build that pressure. I think the Sunrise Movement is an exemplary organization. Um, that's organizing you know, thousands and thousands of young people to change the common sense about climate change and a Green New Deal and to apply pressure and to have power to wield because they've been actually electing people. Like they were instrumental in electing uh, Ed Markey, re-electing Ed Markey against uh, a, a you know centrist corporate um, challenger of, of Joe Kennedy. Who's also headlining an event for Biden because perfect person to headline an event for Biden. I mean, how how much could he do? But seriously, like Biden should be taking an opportunity to open his arms up to Sunrise because they are a force of nature and could be used in a more powerful way um, if 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 they had any interest in doing so. But uh, Jonathan, I think we could talk for an hour and a half. So maybe we'll we'll have to have you on again very soon because I have no doubt your wisdom will be important for us to look at. You can find Jonathan's book, Roadmap. Well, I 
I have your. I don't have it next to me right now. A roadmap for radicals because I read it like how many years ago? Three, four years ago. When did you, when did you come out with? I interviewed at you, you on TYT about this. Very beginning of 2017, January 2017. Yep, that was it. And I, have, it. I have another book coming out next year, by the way, with Strong Arm Press. Um, can I curse or not? Uh, not the F word. Okay. Well, it has that word in it. It's blankers at the top. Um, a Practical Guide for Overthrowing America's Ruling Class. That'll be coming out with um, Strong Arm Press uh, next year. Um, and can I plug Not Him Us again? Of course, yes, please go yeah. ahead. Um, Not Him Us is a, is a place for people who are really ambivalent about the Democratic Party and about Biden. Um, and it's, it's not vote shaming. It's not saying that the Democratic, it's actually saying kind of the Democratic Party deserves to lose. But that doesn't mean that everyday working people can afford for Trump to win. And so there's a bunch of writing there and there's ways to get involved. So check it out, nothimus.org. A lot of folks who are involved in Bernie involved in this project. Awesome. Jonathan Smucker, thank you. Uh, Hope to see you again very soon. Really great talking to you, Nomiki. Thanks for having me on. killer panel and I can tell just from the start that we're going to go over so we're going to take a little break at the end and patrons are going to have some extra content because that's what happens when you become a patron join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for extra interviews and more time with our amazing panelists we have Ken Klippenstein he is a national correspondent is that correct at the nation and my former colleague at TYT uh, you're at TYT investigates master of FOIA and and getting Important people to leak information to you. Uh, very important skill. And Napoleon DeLegend, he's a musician, an artist, an activist. He's a recurring panelist on the Nomi Key Show. And of course, you know him from the Michael Brooks Show. Guys, we have a lot of news to discuss. Um, I, I just want to start off with this because we touched on it last week with Napoleon. Uh, the, the conversation around vote harvesting um, with Ilhan Omar. Something was pushed out by the problematic project veritas which is not very veritas uh so can we just show the 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 tweet that aoc put out a couple minutes ago a few hours ago all right so so aoc dragon tulsi gabbard you along with everyone else who amplified this fraudulence story oh representative omar a public apology she's referring to the fact that uh laban osman who was the subject of Project Veritas, uh, the alleged voter fraud story, was offered $10,000 by Omar Jamal, who is a Project Veritas insider in a Somali community. So this is crazy because last week we just talked about this and how Tulsi Gabbard like went off. But then we also talked about how communities and organizers, this is this is how they disrupt movements. And Napoleon, you spoke specifically from your own, you know, your own personal background. Uh, were you surprised? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, when I seen that, I was like, it's good to see evidence of this type of stuff actually going on. And I think we called it right last week that, you know, and, and it, it hurts to me, it hurts her credibility. I think she does owe... Uh, Ilhan an apology for doing something so irresponsible and and smearing her in that way when they're obviously trying to obstruct and trying to bring chaos in the whole game. Ken, like you, you're you're picking up hot tips across the board all day long, uh, compiling them. It's it's not nothing new to movements that they try to disrupt movements and and take on the working class. Um, 
do you have a sense of like how much of this is happening on the ground right now? Well, if you look at the intelligence coming into the uh, law enforcement intelligence communities, what they found is that the far right groups are actually adopting tactics um, wherein they will do things like property destruction, you know, violence, and try to do it in such a way that it gets attributed to the far left groups or to you know to groups like uh, so-called Antifa or activists generally. So that's something that the law enforcement intelligence community themselves, you know, not particularly far to the left, that they appreciate themselves. So um, seeing this happen, I mean, <laughs> I'm in shock that they would use the name Veritas and then do these kinds of things. But we know who they are. This is what yeah. um, James O'Keefe does. You know, this is his modus operandi. The real shame should go to any of the outlets, media outlets that carry these things, realizing, you know, what their track record on these sort of things is, especially Tulsi. I mean, uh, I have to imagine she <laughs> is not unaware of who James O'Keefe is. Anyone in the sort of media sphere is going to know who that guy is, what his history is. So I um, can't say I'm surprised. Um, but uh, still disappointed. <laughs> and, and not to mention the fact that, like, their claim of, of vote harvesting or whatever voter fraud shenanigans, they, first off, Ilhan didn't, doesn't need, she's safe. So I, that to, be, to right. start Why with. Why would that be useful in me. Minnesota? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. In addition to the fact that, I mean, if you're to believe the polling, which, you know, I'm sure polling is imperfect, but what else can we go off of? I mean, yeah. I'm not going to start reading. Um, uh, astrological signs or something. I mean, this is the best we have. That's for me to do. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. Rather <laughs> than another episode. But um, uh, I mean, to look at the state of the race now, it's sort of funny. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that might, you know, uh, push people over the edge in a close race and make them really worried. But all of the swing states are just so solidly Biden, at least at this point in time, that it's sort of comical to see them do this in a safe blue state that I don't think has voted uh, for a Republican in the last 30 years, to my understanding. <laughs> Well, it wasn't it just so that they could have two narratives, right? Uh, in, in 2016, Trump was the Mexicans are stealing your jobs. Uh, now it's the uh, Islamic community is is trying to disrupt vote the votes, right? Yeah, what's so like crazy about all this is just let's look at the um, the actual crime of, uh, you know, that, that would govern something like a, a, a vote harvesting scheme. There are very serious penalties for that kind of thing. You're telling me that they're going to risk like, uh, you know, very high level felonies in order to get what a few hundred votes in a safe blue state. The whole story is preposterous on its face. And it makes you wonder, you know, what else they're up to that that maybe is less insane on its face that, that the media could fall for. Isn't this just dog whistling, Napoleon, like a, another form of it? That's what I was going to say. I think it's, it's a national sport for for the right wing to smear El Elhan Omar. And I think it's a long term project because. We know it's it's yes right, but people that keep hearing stuff like that, it, it, they they start uh, harboring anger towards her and start thinking she's evil and start you know she's getting all these death threats and things like that. And I think it's a long term plan to like just keep throwing dirt on her name until like you know something sticks. But at least that the people on that side will have that image of her that she's corrupt in some in some way. And you know you you made a fair point that the media should also be blamed for pushing this narrative out there and, and Tulsi as well, who knows what she's up to. But Fox News has a history of finding a woman they don't like on the left or center left and then making that woman the subject of every single pro like the, she isn't she, Hillary Clinton, you know, in the 90s and, and then into the 2000s and Nancy Pelosi and of course AOC and now it's Ilhan. This is this is a bigger part, but but on that note, I, I want to show a video to you guys. Um, I was I, I went to a Trump rally this weekend. Something probably Ken's done before for reporting. Have you? 
You ever send you out there? No, actually. My stuff is mostly, I mean, I talk to Trump supporters all the time because I'm talking to people in law enforcement and the military and things like that, but not actually to a rally. It was, um, it was in Scottsdale. I stumbled across it um, going to brunch because, you know, like any good activist, I just wanted to go to brunch. And uh, so I, I walked across the street and I went to this, this pop-up Trump rally on Saturday. So let's just play a clip from that. ago that he was going to be disappearing for about 10 days if you listen to the x-22 reports there's no way he could have covid because he's taken hydroxychloroquine the z-packs and zinc this is his time to get away this is the 10 days he was talking about go back on x22report.com go to past uh different episodes x-22 report is the right wing true news media for people that want to know the truth okay so so you don't think covid exists what's that you don't think covid exists? i think covid exists but it's not any different than what the cold is to be honest with you so i have a question for you if trump was going away for 10 days why would he choose a time when he has to win over swing voters three percent of voters are undecided why would he go off the campaign trail and cancel all of his events He's not canceling events. There's going to be different people within the organization that are going to be doing it remotely. And if you look at the polls, you're going to try and tell me Biden's leading by nine. I'm not saying that. I'm not even worried about that. I'm not not saying that. I'm curious, though. You know, so now his administration, Chris Christie has COVID now. Many people have COVID. I mean, the best way to excite his base, he's even said, is through these rallies. And they're all canceled now. We don't we don't need to worry about whether or not he's got the support you got you got the drift right this is this is what's happening um in arizona and uh, you know just going back to like the 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 ideas around propaganda so 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 a lot of the ideas that we're now seeing on like fox news tucker carlson we're talking about this in the majority report are very similar mimic what's coming out of this QAnon supporters mouth and yet on the left it really takes an extraordinary amount of organizing and movement building and pressure building and literally showing up on the streets and banging our heads against the wall and presidential candidates and debates to get an idea mainstreamed in in like even sometimes left wing media, uh, to be completely honest, to be picked up. So, Ken, I mean, as a reporter, <laughs> why? Like, I mean, what is it about reporters that? I mean, I'm talking about even on the left, like what that that really there's there's such an institutional bias against the left. And like I've even called up reporters and said, hey, you should check out this thing. And you have to go through so many more hoops to get them to to even cover something. And and like I'm talking to this guy and it's like it's the same message on Fox News, which is now on CNN because they've got some panelists on there. Yeah, I mean, um, what ends up happening is Fox has so much money behind it that um, they can just by dint of their resources and uh, viewership, uh, they can give a sort of legitimacy or the appearance of legitimacy to these ideas that are obviously um, silly and ridiculous and and clearly not true. And then uh, the tendency then is that, um, you know, they have a sort of 
interesting structure there at Fox where they'll get the different um, hosts talking about it on the different shows and sort of coordinate these things. And then a place like CNN, this very bloodless, um, you know, <laughs> not particularly, like certainly not uh, political in the sense of, um, you know, being a countervailing force to Fox or anything like that, will look at it and say, well, gee, it seems like everyone's talking about it. Uh, maybe this is relevant. But um, everyone's talking about it because it's been this astroturfed effort on the part of the, you know, uh, right wing outlets that have a lot of resources to do these kinds of things. And that, so it's sort of uh, disingenuous to say that there's just some kind of organic discussion around it. I mean, maybe people are talking about it, but that's because Fox <laughs> set it up that way. Uh, and it's not just Fox anymore. You know, it's websites like Breitbart and uh, some of these other groups. And so they tend to be very effective at that kind of thing. Um, you know, why the left is less like that? I mean, I think the left generally is going to probably have less money, less resources to pump out these kind of things. Because let's be clear. Um, it's not an accident that they happen to believe these things that are sort of exculpatory to uh, President Trump and, and you know, get people to think, oh, he's actually fine. This disease is fine. We don't have to worry that 200,000 Americans died and the president hasn't done enough about it uh, because it's actually not real or, you know, whatever it is that they're told to think. That's not an accident. So I think there's always going to be probably more money and resources for those kinds of ideas. I mean, Napoleon, I think what really shocks me, though, sometimes is, and, and maybe this is just personal, but, like, I, I start off with the show talking about, Wayne Barrett, who was a famed uh, investigative reporter in New York, who's been, he was sounding the alarm his entire career, literally, wrote books on this, columns, won awards on Donald Trump and 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 his right-wing agenda and, and Rudy Giuliani as well. So even on the left, it's still like, it's still like, at what point do we get people to take things seriously? I mean, I had a conversation a few minutes ago over whether or not we should call Trump a fascist. I mean, I, I I still see I still see that disconnect. I think, I I, I think it's, it's to to piggyback on what Ken said is just they're so organized and so well funded that it like the messages also like go outside of just the right. You know, they 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 also get to the left, and some people from the left start believing these things, and also on the left, there's there's a lot of infighting too. So it, it's just a, a lack of overall organization. It feels like. Like this guy, like what you just played, it could be like a YouTube ad for that conservative. I think you just. Uh... Oh, oh, am I still here? Yep, you're there. Can you hear me? Got you. Got you. Okay, sorry about that. I said this guy, he 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 could have been like um do, do a YouTube ad for that conservative channel, that right wing channel he was promoting. Like he was so much on message, and it's it's. I think it would be very challenging for us on the left to have that, since we do lack the resources, and we're also like a more diverse crowd of thinkers like like a lot of the the right wing they, they they're really good at falling in line and just getting behind their leaders feels like this guy has like an imaginary relationship with trump where he, he even though he says he's sick they're like he's sending him like special signals like i'm not really sick you know this is part of the plan it, it's, it's so ridiculous but it's this is what we're dealing with right now it's absolutely insane. Okay, so um, I, I have a couple more things I want to talk about with you guys, but uh, can you have a story in the nation about how ICE became a propaganda machine for Trump while we're on the topic of message? Um, tell us about this story that you broke in, in the nation. It's today yeah, so I got, I, I got to know somebody who worked in ICE's public affairs division. They handled public messaging. So they'll, you know, give the media talking points from the administration or, you know, kind of make the case and, you know, it's normal for them to reflect, uh, you know, they want to reflect uh, the sort of aims of the administration. That's normal. I'm not saying that's that's uncommon. But um, this individual who had worked there for a number of years since the Obama administration, he ended up leaving because he said to me, uh, as he described it, he said it was becoming a, quote, 
uh, propaganda machine. And as he went on to describe how that worked, uh, it seemed pretty persuasive. I ended up filing some FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests for internal records from ICE to kind of learn how this how this part of ICE had changed, how uh, you know, in what ways it had become a sort of propaganda tool. And um, what I found was pretty surprising. So. Um, in addition to just these uh, tweets that are written as though it was in Trump's voice, uh, that's gotten plenty of coverage already. Uh, you know, they like to focus on the anti, you know, child trafficking work that that segments of ICE uh, does, which they do do some of that. I don't mean to dispute that, but they really like to put a lot of the emphasis on on that part of it, which I don't think anyone has a problem with. And then they, um, you know, don't talk about uh, what is the stuff that people really take issue with ICE. If you look at uh, opinion polls on them, not just liberals, but even a lot of conservatives took issue with the family separation policy at the southern border, for instance, um, the uh, crackdown on undocumented individuals within the country, the deportations happening, the really unpopular stuff, they don't like to focus on that so much. So um, again, they're going to try to tell the point of view of the administration, but uh, the it, it's sort of like how extreme it's gotten now that uh, really upset my friend that worked there. And so um, over the course of this FOIA request that I sent, they didn't respond to it. It was this whole kind of Kafka-esque process of um, fighting with them in court because they ended up suing them about it. And finally, they were able to give me these records and after some negotiations. How, wait, wait, how long of a process was this? You, you ended well, up suing them, nation sued them? Um, I actually have an attorney friend who does this stuff at cost. She's very generous. Um, and I had started this suit, I think before I was at the nation. But, wow. um, we it, it, All told, it was like over a year. So the, this is why the public doesn't learn a lot of these things because it takes so long. So time intensive places like the New York Times, the Post, they like they they're like go go go. They want to cover stuff that's you know now like in the head. So they're not going to do this kind of stuff. But anyways, what I was able to find um, over the course of this lawsuit, and I could kind of understand why they didn't want to cough up these documents, um, was that uh, they had in at least one case, and there's several cases like this, uh, targeted a journalist, or they actually mentioned her by name, um, which is very unusual. Usually they'll talk about an outlet, or maybe they'll say there was a report that we disagree with. You know, again that that's something that can happen. But they mentioned this person by name um, for uh, she had raised a question about one of their officers who had a tattoo on his elbow that looked like a, she, she, she asked if it seemed like an Iron Cross. People pointed out, well, it could be a Maltese cross, Iron Cross being Nazi iconography, of course. And so um, once people start pointing out, well, it could be a number of different things that sort of look like that. She ended up taking the tweet down. And then the next day, actually, ICE in uh, these documents that had been released to me showed that they had discussed internally uh, you know, let's pump this guy up that she had targeted, that she had asked if what his uh, what his tattoo was, if it was not his tattoo. Let's focus on his, um, you know, military service. Let's focus on the fact that he's an amputee who had been injured in, in, in Afghanistan. And, and let's tell the story about this great guy. And then this journalist who's just, um, you know, being so unfair to him. And so they end up tweeting that out. And within a week, she had lost her job. She's a freelance journalist now. She had gotten tons of death threats, which I actually called people to verify this, to see it. And the stuff I don't even want to see on air, the kinds of things that she was getting um, from these uh, supporters who were responding in, uh, to, the, to the ICE press release about her. And what's interesting is, as I talked to my friend who had been in the uh, uh, ICE, ICE uh, Public Affairs Division, he said that a lot of this stuff was signed off on by uh, Stephen Miller, who is the president's advisor uh, on these immigration matters and himself a very hardline anti-immigration uh, person. And so uh, while I don't know if he played a role in this specifically, uh, my friend says they like to keep it out of emails and things. Uh, the, the, they're infamous for this, which I've heard from other people in the DHS as well. Uh, he speculates that it's likely that he had a hand in it. And um, ultimately, what ended up being the destroying of this individual's career, who's, you know, lost her job, hasn't, you know, has been has been freelancing since. 
Um, and so that shows the enormity of the power that the Trump administration can, can bring to bear when they want to use this megaphone that they have, that they're willing to use to an extent and a degree that you didn't see with the Obama administration or the Bush administration even. Um, uh, and that is, uh, that's really why I investigated it was because I wanted to see how, how is the, how are the internal processes of these sorts of things working in there? And, and it's clear that they've really picked up on the sort of rhetoric that, that President Trump is using, this sort of war between real America and, right. and, the, and the left or whatever. Um, and, and so this this example, sadly, I think was a, was a nice illustration, was a useful illustration of that. I think, I think I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's interesting there. The dragging things out through process, and, and it's why sometimes we're not able, listen, it happens on the left too, you know, sometimes we're not able to make tremendous change because things get dragged out through process. But um, I'm really shocked that her employer didn't rehire her uh, after, I mean, granted, you just published the story, so give it a half hour, right. maybe they'll and, hire yeah. her or make and a comment. What's, what's more is they ended up, I, I forgot to mention this, they deployed um, an armed uh, Homeland Security Investigations unit to the person's house that she had just asked this question of, does this look like a Nazi tattoo? They sent an armed person there. And if you look at the internal emails that I obtained under FOIA, they're saying, we're worried for his life. This journalist put his life in danger. And when you look at the tweets that they, uh, so they said uh, it, within these documents, it shows that they were, quote, monitoring tweets for further threats. And when you look at some of the tweets that they were saying around that they alleged were dangerous, I mean, it was certainly mean-spirited. People are not a fan of ICE, but there was no threat of any sort of injury or bodily harm or any, or any, any sort of physical threat of any sort. So it, this whole thing escalated very quickly, and one can imagine, um, you know, in these sorts of conditions, and this is something I've learned getting to know law enforcement intelligence, there's this kind of paranoia um, that, uh, you know, I, I think they generally have, you know, they're, they're besieged, these kinds of things. And when you have a president like, like ours willing to go out there and say there's a war on cops, quote, as he said recently, uh, that just exacerbates this, this ambient um, anxiety that I think a lot of folks in law enforcement tend to have about the uh, communities that they are tasked with policing. So, um, you know, this, this uh, to me, it, it seemed like a warning about, uh, you know, how quickly things can spin out of control uh, just based on their own perceptions. Because I don't think they were even lying about the threat necessarily. I, I think they might have believed it. It's just that there's mm -hmm. no evidence for it. Right. Um, for those of you who are patrons, uh, we're going to jump to an, ex an extra interview uh, right after this. We're going to extend the panel out. But if you're not a patron, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show because there's plenty more. Uh, in the meantime, go check out Ken's article in The Nation that just published a few minutes ago. Uh, put it up on the screen again if you have it called How ICE Became a Propaganda Machine for Trump or How the Whole Government is Running as a Propaganda Machine for Trump. Uh, Napoleon de Legend, love you. Stick around. Ken, Love you. Stick around. And uh, for those of you who want to check out Patreon later, uh, we will see you tomorrow right here at the Nomi Key Show at 3 p.m. Eastern. And make sure to go get your mugs. They're up there. We've got new mugs. Another supply of mugs. NomiKeyShow.com. We'll see you tomorrow.